Welcome in to the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media, and will be Michael Freer. This is episode number 50, the Eddie House episode, and tonight's honoree is a very warranted one, as I was a big Eddie House fan growing up, so much so that I grew up wearing number 50 as a junior in high school. I didn't realize that at the time, but despite being a junior on the varsity team, since I was number 50, I was always announced last in the starting lineup as the high school announcers always went in numerical order. So not going to lie, I thought it was pretty cool being the last announced as a junior on the varsity team. You know, there are a lot of seniors on the team and I was still the last one, like I was Steve Nash or Kobe Bryant or one of the big stars in the game. So kudos to you, Eddie House, and thanks for making me look cool in high school. And Bruce, you were flashing something on that screen. You want to show us again? Oh, yeah. My apologies to the Admiral, David Robinson, as Bruce puts up a very nice tops card of uh, uh, the Spurs legend there. And was tough to pass on him, but I had to go with the, the guy in my heart, and that is Eddie House. And you know what, Bruce? That's a guy that also played for your Boston Celtics, so you can't be that mad. No, I'm not. I mean, Eddie House is on the NBC Sports Boston studio team now, uh, along with Brian Scalabrini and Amina Smith. And he does a really good job. I mean, I think he's, um, you know, he's a homer like every other Boston announcer sure. has ever been a homer. But while being a homer, he also makes some pretty good points. So uh, uh, I think uh, I think he's he's good TV and we like Eddie House. He was on that 08 team. So, yeah. Yeah, we're good with Eddie. We're good with Eddie. Perfect. Yeah, I'm glad you're good with the Arizona State Sun Devil there. But uh, before we move on any further, want to let everybody know Bet Online is your number one source for all your championship finals info, stats, news, and scores. Get the latest odds and lines and the latest matchup reports for this year's NBA and Stanley Cup finals. Bet Online is your sports intel headquarters this season, as we have you covered for all your insider sports wagering needs from basketball and hockey to MLB, UFC, and boxing. The fastest and easiest way to get your betting info, including live betting options in your favorite casino and card games, available to play right from your home. Get in on the action today. Head to the website or use your mobile device to join and be sure to use our promo code Believe. that is B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. And tonight, Bruce, I start with you for our opening tip. Thank you, Ross. You know, here on the 48 Minutes podcast, we try to address topics that other shows might not care about, but that we feel are important when it comes to understanding what matters in the NBA. So I'd like to open with an appreciation of a so-called journeyman who's with his 11th team in a 13-year NBA career. He probably won't be headed to the Hall of Fame as a player, but his teammates and coach consider him incredibly valuable both on the court and behind the scenes. His name is Jeff Green, and you've seen him coming off the bench, playing around 18 minutes a game, usually in relief of one of Denver's three starting bigs. In the postseason, he's only averaging around four points and two rebounds, but he is always ready when it's time to go. Just three months shy of his 37th birthday, the 6'8", 235-pound green continues to show great athleticism and bounce, as well as veteran leadership that benefits his younger teammates. Just the other day, Aaron Gordon was asked about green, and he called him his big bro, who gives him great advice on a regular basis. Although green has had a long career, it hasn't been an easy one. He was the fifth overall pick in the 2007 NBA draft by the Celtics, but was traded to Seattle in the deal that brought Ray Allen to Boston. After three and a half seasons uh, with the Sonics slash Thunder, Green was traded back to Boston in 2010. But late in 2011, he was diagnosed with an aortic aneurysm and underwent open heart surgery, missing the entire 2011-2012 season. During his downtime, he not only rehabbed from the surgery, but he finished his education at Georgetown, earning a degree in English with a minor in theology. After Boston, he played for eight more teams in seven seasons before ending up in Denver two seasons ago. Jeff Green has been a beloved teammate everywhere he's played, and now as the elder statesman in Denver, he's just three wins away from his first NBA championship. Rarely has a so-called journeyman been more valuable off the bench on the team playing, in the locker room, in practice, and yes, on the court. In short, Jeff Green's value far exceeds the numbers next to his name in the box score. 
It truly is an incredible story when it comes to Jeff Green. And he is well known around the league amongst his peers as Uncle Jeff or Uncle Jeffy. And uh, goes along the lines of what you were just saying there is being a uh, a model and, uh, you know, mentor to those younger than him. And uh, for guys that are out there, of course, doing sports betting, I always like to put Jeff Green in for two points a game. Uh, right now, it's been around 420, 460 for him to just score two points. Of course, he had a big game in game two, which we're going to get to here soon. Uh, so keep an eye on Jeff Green's points line in your same game parlay. As for my opening tip, I had mentioned on last Friday's show that I'd be curious how Suns owner Matt Ishbia planned on using the $20 million he saved by Detroit hiring Monty Williams as their new head coach. Well, we're already getting a ton of clarity on how those funds are going to be utilized. We learned this past weekend that Suns assistant and head coach finalist Kevin Young will actually stay on in Phoenix on Frank Vogel's staff and reportedly will become the highest paid lead assistant in the league. And then earlier on Monday, it was also reported that the Suns have hired David Fisdale as an assistant coach after receiving a very competitive offer that convinced Fisdale to depart his front office role with the Utah Jazz. These are two huge moves as Vogel continues to assemble his coaching staff. Vogel is well known for his attention to detail on the defensive end of the floor. And Kevin Young is best known as an offensive coach. And the one thing that we certainly know about David Fisdale is how familiar he is working with, coaching, and mentoring big-name players, as he once did in Miami when the Heat had D. Wade, Bosch, and LeBron. Suns fans should be thrilled with the coaching nucleus forming in Phoenix, and now the intrigue turns to how Ishbia and the organization ends up rounding out this roster that certainly needs some improvement to its depth. But one thing is for sure, the coaching depth is quite impressive already, We've just learned of the first few coaching hires. So we'll have to keep an eye on that moving forward. World B, what do you have for your opening tip tonight? Well, thank you, Ross. Uh, Eric Spolster has rightfully earned a reputation as one of the greatest coaches in the history of this league. And with the possible exception of Greg Popovich, the best coach the league has at the moment. But he showed a pretty lousy side of himself after the Heat came away with a surprising Game 2 victory Sunday. In the press conference, an ESPN reporter began to ask about how Miami turned Nikola Jokic into more of a scorer than a passer. Spolster called out Ramona Shelburne, laboring her question as, quote, ridiculous, and saying that, quote, it's the untrained eye that says something like that. We'll forget for the moment that another future Hall of Fame coach, Steve Spur, made the exact same comparison about the Joker on Draymond Green's post-game podcast. The way Spolstra handled himself towards that legitimately valid question was completely unprofessional and made Spolstra look like an arrogant bully. And now, instead of having all the attention focused on his team's impressive Game 2 victory, this has become a sidebar story that likely will not go away until after Game 3 post-game presser at the earliest. Eric Spolstra has a lot of impressive qualities as a coach, that have been on this display throughout this postseason. He's been given as much credit for his team reaching the NBA Finals as any player on the team, including Jimmy Butler. But it turns out that perhaps the coach needs a refresher course in press conference conduct. Well said there will be. And yes, a little surprising to hear Coach Spo react that way to a question um, in a uh, press conference after a game. Very uncharacteristic like, and uh, hopefully uh, that won't happen again because, you know, R Ramona certainly deserves better. And she is a well-respected reporter amongst the uh, media members around the NBA. Uh, so let's let's get right to it here for our first quarter and do a game two recap as the Miami Heat snapped the Denver Nuggets undefeated home road record during this year's playoffs with a 111-108 road win. The series is now tied up 1-1 as the series shifts to Miami. Bruce, I'll start with you. What were your big takeaways after game two? Well, there were a few. I mean, the, the Buston got of the gate in game one. Uh, Aaron Gordon set the tone for Denver. In game two, he was facing a different uh, defender in Kevin Love uh, starting and playing him. Uh, he guarded Gordon. He rebounded well. He had double-digit rebounds. You know, Kevin Love's defense has actually gotten better over the years. Not so much that he's a lockdown guy, but he really has learned how to move his feet in a very clever way and draw a lot of charges 
And I think, you know, with a guy like uh, Gordon, he's much closer to him in height. In fact, he's probably even a bit taller than him. Uh, so I thought that was a really uh, nice adjustment uh, that uh, that uh, uh, Spolstra made there. And the other thing that I come away with, and I've been saying this pretty much since game one of the playoffs, Bam Adebayo makes it all work for Miami. Jimmy Butler gets all the shine, but Bam is the backbone of this team. And he has competed with Jokic. Yes, Jokic got a bunch of points, but uh, Bam did too. And and Bam's contributions uh, really, I think, were, were the number one thing for the Heat in game two. Uh, there were other great performances too. I mean, look, Gabe Vincent is like Kyle Lowry 2.0. I mean, you know, he's what Kyle Lowry was like maybe eight years ago, right? I mean, gritty, gutty, doesn't take, you know, any plays off. Uh, and even Kyle Lowry 1.0 had a decent game. Uh, didn't have a great plus minus. But again, we've talked about this before too. When they were trying to shorten the game at the end, when they got the lead, he did an incredible job controlling the tempo, milking the clock. And I think this is something that won't show up in the box score, but the way that Denver sort of rallied down the stretch where they were, you know, you know, they cut that lead down. If you think about all the time that Kyle Lowry took off the clock in the last four minutes, if there had been another two minutes of game time in that fourth quarter, the way Denver was finishing, they would have probably won the game. But Kyle Lowry contributed to them holding them off by limiting the possessions, shortening the game. It's like in football, when you can run the ball and play defense, you milk that clock, you shorten the game. Lowry did an incredible job of that. So just all the little things Miami did in, in game two added up to a really tremendous win for those guys. Yeah, that's been the big thing for Miami. Just the little things all playoffs long, which is why they're finding success. You know, Of course, the time management, we mentioned that a lot during the Boston series as well not allowing Boston to go on those big runs as they can run up and down and shoot a ton of threes and really get back into a ball game. They just continue to execute on the offense then using that clock. And then I'm glad you mentioned Kevin Love. Obviously, he's not getting any quicker. But the one thing I've noticed about this Miami Heat defense, which I can truly appreciate as a, a former coach, is the fact that they play position – they play very good position on defense. And a lot of times that can make up for, for speed. I mean, if you're in the right position, you're going to be able to help out more, take charges like in Kevin Love's chant, uh, and Kevin Love's case there. And Bam Autobio, too, very good positional defender, knows where to be, one, two passes off the ball. And Miami as a whole just does a great job playing defense on the string. Now, World B, I know before game two, I think we should let everybody know you did text the both. Bruce and I, and, and, and let us know. And you called it. You said the Heat are going to win game two. I didn't believe you. What was it about game two that you thought Miami Heat could get this job done? Well, it was a couple of things. Uh, you know, Denver got a lot of praise for their offense in game one and how well they played and, and Joker got so much credit, and rightfully so. But you look at, at the end of the day, they only had 104 points in this game. So... Yeah, you know, while the offense was certainly efficient, it wasn't like they uh, scored a you know like the Denver teams of the '80s when they averaged 120 points a game. This wasn't the same uh, explosive Denver offense we saw in game. They had you know they dominated that game. They deserved to win it. Uh, it was probably not as close as the final score indicated. So I I thought we needed to pump the brakes a little bit on Denver's explosive offense. But then the other thing I I was just banking on the fact that I didn't see Miami shooting as poorly as they did in game one. If you want to go back, they had that tough series with the Celtics that won seven games, and then they come right back and have to play game one in on the road. I don't necessarily believe the altitude was a factor. I just think traveling on the road uh, from Boston to Denver probably had a bigger factor. So if there was going to be a down game, it would have been game one. I, I was counting on them shooting the ball better in game two, and they did. They shot – tremendously better, almost 50% from threes. And the guys that struggled in game one, Caleb Martin, Duncan Robinson, and Max Struss, that were uh, two of 16 on threes in game one, were seven of 15 in game two. So it was a complete turnaround. Butler was a little more aggressive. Bam Adebayo, I couldn't believe when I was listening between games, 
people talking about uh, how Miami didn't have a chance because, well, you got a career night of Bam out of bio. You expect you need that again. And I was like, he didn't go for 50. He's an all-star. He's done this before. This is, you know, Bam's a player. And he came up with another solid game again. Uh, they got off to the great start that they needed uh, and put Denver on its heels a little bit for a while. And Denver obviously came back and had a, you know, took control of the game we thought for a long time. Miami is dominating the fourth quarter, guys. They're absolutely, they're outscoring them by 21 points. That fourth quarter they had, they scored 36 points on 19 possessions, really 20, but that last rebound off the missed three at the end somehow counted the possession, but it was really 36 points on just 19 possessions in the fourth quarter. That's unbelievably efficient. Here's how efficient it is, and I'll let you go, let you get to it. 189.5 points per 100 possessions in the fourth quarter of game two. That's a higher efficiency in the fourth quarter than any team has had in any game, regular season or postseason, over the last two years. And shout out to NBA.com for pointing that note out. That's an unbelievable effort by Miami in the fourth quarter, which they also did in game one, by the way, just couldn't sustain it. Yeah. You know, the other thing, the other thing that, that really, you know, you talked about the three point shooting, how they shot 49% for the game in the first quarter, Max Struess just had it going. He made four threes in the first, in the first quarter. And then early in the fourth quarter, Duncan Robinson and, you know, and, uh, uh, Vincent, whatever they, you know, so they had hot three point shooting at the beginning of the game and at the end of the game. And really, Backbreaking threes, you know, and you just gotta, you just gotta give it to them. And you know, also, Michael Porter Jr. and Contavious Caldwell Pope had two of the worst games at both ends of the court. KCP had some god awful, stupid fouls in this game. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. You could clearly see his shot wasn't falling, and he basically didn't give a crap on defense because his shot wasn't falling. And I know when Michael Malone was talking post game about lack of effort. He might as well have just said, and I'm talking to you, Michael Porter Jr. Yeah. And, and speaking of Coach Malone, obviously he went into game two saying, you know, I'm definitely not banking on this Miami Heat team just shooting two free throws in, in game two. And he was quite correct there. And uh, going back to what World B said about that aggressiveness from the Miami Heat, they did a great job getting to the line. And then once they got there, converting, they were 18 to 20 for the game, shooting 90%, which was huge for them. And, you know, the Heat had three players score at least 20 points. And Gabe Vincent, Bam Adebayo, and Jimmy Butler. I think the Heat are going to be tough to stop in a game that they get contributions from three different guys to score 20. Now, can Vincent always be that third wheel in that equation? I'm not quite sure. I mean, obviously, he's capable. We've seen that. Uh, but whether or not that can be consistent, I think that'd be a key for the Denver Nuggets defense is to, you know, try to control to just two of those guys to score in the 20s. And they'll be in much better shape. Now, I got a quick question for both of you here. Denver is now 0-3 during the playoffs when the Joker scores 40-plus points. And uh, just kind of want to get your reaction from that. I mean, are there any concerns with just like, you know, if he has a huge scoring game, does that just mean the other guys around him are, are slumping or is he not involving them as much? I mean, are, are you just concerned that when he has such a excellent game offensively, you know, they – just don't have the results behind it. 0-3. Bruce? I've never seen him as somebody who tries to force his own offense at the expense of his teammates. I mean, yeah, Joker scored all the points. But as I mentioned, Porter and KCP gave them nothing. So a lot of the shots sure. that would result in normally in those guys knocking down shots, a lot of times on passes from Joker. So the assists that he should have gotten had they made a few shots, he didn't get. OK, and I think, you know, he was looking at that saying, well, OK, somebody's got to get some buckets on this team. You know, I'm, I'm going to do it. Uh, but his overall number was minus 11 and he actually had more turnovers than assists, five turnovers, four assists, which is highly unusual, maybe unprecedented that he would have more turnovers and assists in any game ever. But that's what happened. So I think, you know, in the in, the, you know, look, you could see. Yeah, those guys weren't making shots. And also, too, 
they had, you know, they had all kinds of guys around him with their arms up too. So they played really good defense. I mean, their defensive scheme, whether it's the zone or going back and forth from man to man to zone, out of bio being very active. Um, I don't put any, I don't put any of the blame on Joker. I put it on guys who couldn't make a shot. And uh, I think, you know, if that happens in Game Three, Denver's in really big trouble. Absolutely. Will B, what are your thoughts on that? 0-3 when Joker scores 40-plus. Uh, it's it's certainly uh, a valid concern. I would place a higher uh, emphasis on it if it wasn't for the fact that Michael Porter Jr. and uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope have had two lousy games and not just a good game one and a lousy game two. They haven't been anywhere close to what we expect from them in either of the first two games. So I don't know if it necessarily falls on, you know, that number, but you know, the numbers are the numbers. Like you say, he had 41 points in game two. The other four starters had 41 points in game one. That ratio was 27 for, for Joker and 63 for the other four starters. So, you know, there's, there could be something to be said for that. I just, at the end of the day, I just think the fact that those two have not played well, Aaron Gordon's had been fine in both games, really, numbers-wise. So it hasn't bothered him one way or the other. Uh, Jamal Murray didn't have a great game in uh, in game two until the end where he hit a couple of threes and got him you know, to make that rally. So I don't necessarily think it falls on on Joker. I, I agree with Bruce. I, you know what? Nobody else was scoring. I had to score. And I, uh, he literally couldn't be stopped at times. Um uh, making some incredibly, well, we call them incredible shots, but for him, they almost look routine. You got to remind yourself who's taking the shot because it doesn't look pretty all the time. And he goes, he goes, holy cow, I can't. And then you correct yourself and realize, oh, well, he did it. So, you know, that's how it goes. But, um, yeah, I think more balance. They did not have the same assist percentage in game two that they had in game one, not even close. It was 73% in game two or game one. And which was the second highest for Denver in the playoffs, and then 59% in game two. So they weren't without Joker dishing it out, as Bruce mentioned, just four assists. The assist percentage went way down. So that means the ball movement isn't there. That means uh, a lot of things, you know, the assist, the distribution just isn't there like it normally is. That's a key to their success, too. So I, but I, at the end of the day, no, I don't think there's anything to it. Okay, fair enough there. I guess I could have um, said that like five seconds into your question. Yeah, no, I, I like the explanation. I, I certainly appreciate it there. So uh, anyone else have anything else before we get to the uh, second quarter here and uh, preview no, our adjustments? No, let's do it. Let's fix this thing for those guys. All right, second quarter time here as we get ready for game three. Let's get to our adjustments and preview here. And uh, we'll be, I'll start with you. What adjustments do you think we'll see as this series shifts to South Beach? Uh, well, for one, I mean, for me, the big question is always how well is Miami going to shoot? If Miami shoots to three, Denver's in trouble. It's just that simple. How can Denver defend on the perimeter? Because, you know, I've talked about it throughout the regular season and in the postseason. Denver was, or Miami, excuse me, was 27th in three point percentage. And now they're leading the NBA in, in three-point percentage in the in the postseason at 39%. It's just unbelievable. The other night, what, 46.8%. They've had six games in the postseason where they've shot 48.5% or better from three. In the regular season, that happened three times. So, you know, if they're shooting the ball well, that means everybody's shooting the ball well. That means Duncan Robinson. That means Caleb Martin. That means – that's a whole lot of trouble for Denver defense that just does they're just not uh that great of a defense that not nearly as good as they are on offense. So for me, one of the big things is how does Denver handle perimeter defense on Miami? Bruce? My thing is Denver is going to have to do something that they have not had to do a single time during this entire playoffs. And that's they gotta come out and play desperate they have yep. not been forced to play desperate at any point in this playoffs uh so let's see if they have it in them let's see if they can their coach hammered them for their lack of effort after game two uh and as i said before i think he was thinking uh, michael porter jr as the prime uh offender 
So, yeah, they got to come out from the get-go, and they got to match the intensity that Miami's brings every game, you know, out of the gate. Uh, so we'll see. They haven't had to yet. Uh, Joker, as we've said, has to be a little bit more facilitator, and guys got to make shots. I mean, you know, he can facilitate to his heart's desire, but if nobody's knocking down any shots, uh, he's facilitating defensive rebounds for Miami. Uh, and obviously, you know, Miami wants to keep making him play in traffic if they can, put lots of hands up around him to try and make it a little bit tougher for him to see. But remember this. Denver played an absolutely awful game in game two, and they only lost by three, okay? Yeah. So really, talent-wise, they have what it takes. Uh, mental toughness, that one we'll see if they've, if they've got that. We know Porter Jr. and KCP going to have to bring it on the road especially. And, and one thing that you can always count in, on with Miami, they are on a string at both ends of the court. Bam sets the tone on defense. I'm starting to think of him as almost like a poor man's Kevin Garnett, and I don't toss compliments like that around lightly. He's the quarterback on defense. He's the, like the, the spiritual guy on that team, the fiery guy on that team. He's not the only one, but, I mean, I would say he's at least as important as Jimmy Butler to that team. I, I don't think, you know, Jimmy Butler can do the things that he does if – Bam Adebayo isn't out there with him. So uh, I would expect Bam Adebayo to continue to set the tone on defense and, um, you know, throw it up there, see what happens, Ross. Yeah. No, I'm in total agreement with you, Bruce. I think there is got to be a sense of desperation for this Denver Nuggets team. And as you correctly stated there, they have not been in this position all playoffs long. So it should be uh, very interesting to see how they respond. Now, as far as responses are concerned, one big question I have for the Miami Heat is, you know, that guy named Cody Martin that ended up torching the Boston Celtics. He's been kind of uh, Caleb Martin, Caleb Martin. My apologies. I always get the twins mixed up there. But uh, Caleb, I mean, maybe coming back home to Miami, can he get something going? Because he certainly hasn't gotten anything going, hasn't been able to carry forward that momentum into the NBA finals just yet. But if he's able to be activated and, and can get back to, uh, providing a spark for this team, Denver could be in some serious trouble here. I mean, I think game three is pivotal for uh, the response of the Denver Nuggets with that desperation. Can't fall behind 2-1 and then, you know, obviously need to win that game four. So they really got to bring it, win that game three. But a big, big question mark and a big factor for me is Caleb Martin, whether or not he can kind of get everything revitalized, being back home on the home floor in front of the home crowd, kind of build on the, the home crowd's energy around his teammates. I think Vincent's going to continue to bring it. Obviously, Jimmy's going to be Jimmy. We all know that. Bam's going to be Bam. Um, but if Cody Martin can step up and help these guys out, uh, this could just be the Miami Heat's year. But uh, as for the Nuggets, I mean, Jeff Green obviously had a huge game, nine points in 15 minutes in game two. I don't think you can expect much more from him. I'm looking right at Mr. Max here, and that is Michael Porter Jr. I mean, just you, unacceptable performance there in game two at home. Five points, two of eight shooting, one of six from three. He's got to be accounted on to do a lot more than that. Of course, they're paying him to do so, um, but you just can't have letdowns in the NBA Finals from some of your bigger-name guys on your team. So, I mean, as, as well as Bruce Brown and Jeff Green can play off the bench, in a supporting role, Michael Porter Jr. has got to be there and he's got to be effective to help guys like the Joker and Jamal Murray out. So lots of question marks. Uh, now it's funny. They flipped. It's now a lot of question marks for the De Denver Nuggets. Before we were talking about all the question marks for the Miami Heat, but stealing one of those first two uh, road games and doing what no team has done in the playoffs thus far, beating the Nuggets in Denver, uh, pressure certainly shifts. So I'm lo looking forward to seeing what we get in game three here. And with that, we've gone ahead and reached our halftime buzzer. So we'll go ahead and take a quick break and come back with you for the second half. And we're back with the start of our third quarter and um, had a really cool moment at halftime in game two there between the Denver Nuggets and Miami Heat as uh, Coach Adelman was honored winning the Coach Daily Lifetime Achievement Award. And Bruce, 
I know that you're very passionate about this award, know a little bit more about the history of it. Um, so I'll let you kind of explain what that award is and, and kind of tell us who uh, Coach Adlin was as a coach. You know, he was a real innovator at the offensive end. I mean, he coached those really outstanding Sacramento teams that couldn't get past the Lakers back, you know, 20-ish years ago. Uh, he was a huge influence on Eric Spolstra because when he was in Portland, Eric Spolstra was a young pup in their organization. And I believe Eric's dad also worked in the organization too. So he, so Spolstra gives uh, 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 Adelman credit for being a big influence on him. His son, David, is actually on the bench in the finals. He's an assistant to Michael Malone in Denver. A couple of guys in the final series played for Rick Adelman, believe it or not. Kyle Lowry played for him in Houston. Kevin Love played for him in Minnesota. He's number 10 all-time in coaching victories. He's an inductee in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, class of 2021. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's hard to believe, but the guy's 76 years old. I mean, and he always sort of looked youthful to me, but, you know, time catches up to all of us, I suppose. But uh, it's a great award, and and I always enjoy seeing Rick Carlisle uh, out there, uh, you know, handing that award. Rich is head of the Rick's head of the Coaches Association, uh, and, and he's just somebody I, I used to work with. I would call him a friend. I'm a great admirer of his, and I always enjoy when he has something to say about a coach. It always gets my attention because, you know, He's just super smart and great honor for Rick Adelman. Congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. Congrats to him. World B, do you have anything to add as far as uh, what you may remember about Coach Adelman? A very successful coach. I mean, he, he took the Portland Trailblazers to two NBA finals. He just happened to run into the bad boys at the peak of the height of their excellence in 89 and then uh, or 90, I guess, in this case. And then, you know, he ran into uh, Chicago during the second uh, second title of their first three-peat. So it was, you know, he had some really great teams uh, back in the day uh, before he got to uh, to uh, Sacramento where, you know, he really made a name for himself leading uh, the Kings to, you know, unprecedented success for uh, Sacramento anyway. Uh, so yeah, those are the most, you know, that was the most fun team to watch in the league for years. So yeah, very deserving award for a really, uh, top line coach. Yep. And I remember those Sacramento days. I think he was the master of the corner offense and, uh, did a great job utilizing the talents that he had with Bibby, Peja, Doug Christie, Chris Weber, Vlade Divac. I mean, those were some good teams back, back in the day. Uh, going up against the Los Angeles Lakers just fell short uh, on uh, some some tough occasions there in L.A. Uh, in, in those game sevens. But um, speaking of coaches, we also have some more recent notable assistant coaching news that we want to get to here tonight. Of course, I had mentioned uh, Kevin Young at the top of our show here tonight as my opening tip. But uh, let's go ahead and get to Bruce's team here as they went ahead and uh, Signed Sam Cassell, the longtime point guard and now longtime coach, spending the last three years as the lead assistant in Philadelphia. Bruce, what are your thoughts on Sam Cassell coming over to Boston to help out Joe Missoula? You know, this is a very popular move uh, in uh, Celtics Nation. Um, you know, Sam, obviously, he won two championships as a Houston Rocket with Akeem Olajuwon in his first couple of years in the league. Then he was on the 08 championship team with Boston, along with, you know, the big three and that crew. Uh, this is a big deal in Boston. I mean, the Celtics organization has always prided itself on having, you know, I guess you could say a culture. They used to call it Celtics pride, uh, but it was pretty much the same kind of deal that Miami and San Antonio claim to have as far as institutional kind of philosophy of success. So it's a great, uh, it's a big deal. Celtics pride definitely needs a reboot. And uh, while I'm not sure that Sam is going to be necessarily the number one assistant, just having him on the staff, here's a guy who can talk to guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown with the kind of credibility that nobody on the staff this year had. Yeah. And uh, another coaching hire will be that will lead to you here. Kevin Ollie is headed to the Brooklyn Nets as an assistant coach, obviously won a title at UConn and also coached the inaugural overtime elite 
um, and kind of paved the way to get that started up and running to uh, kind of uh, go head to head with the G League Ignite. What are your thoughts on uh, Coach Ollie with the Brooklyn Nets? I think it's a good move. Uh, I never problem with him there. He uh, has uh, coaching experience, obviously, at the collegiate level and and the uh, if you want to call it now the professional level. Uh, he also was former player, obviously played on the I believe the Sixers team that reached the the uh, championship yep. uh, against the Lakers back in two thousand one. So he he's he's been around and he knows the ins and outs of of this sport. So it. It can only help the Nets out who are still in the midst of trying to figure out their roster going forward. Uh, you know, they had such an overhaul of players because of the, all the trades of of uh, Kyrie Irving and uh, Kevin Durant that, you know, they had they played about, what, 20, 30 games tops maybe with that group. So, you know, and they have some offseason moves of their own, uh, decisions of their own to make. So, yeah, th- this will be a good move, solidify uh the coaching staff with quality assistant. No problem there. You know, Kevin Ollie was always destined, I think, to be a coach. He played on 13 NBA. He played 13 NBA seasons for 11 different teams. And I can still vividly remember seeing Kevin Ollie on the bench. He always found a way to situate himself near the coaches. So I think he was kind of learning at their elbow. And I think he knew, you know, he was a journeyman. You know, we talked about Jeff Green at the top being a journeyman. He was a he's a classic journeyman, okay? But he always seemed to know where the coach was sitting, and he always situated himself nearby. So, um, yeah, and let us not forget, not only did he coach in college, he won the national championship with Connecticut in 2014, okay? No small accomplishment. He also sued the school for discrimination and got paid a boatload of money so uh he may be getting paid in his new gig but i mean he's doing fine financially thank you very much yeah absolutely and uh, the one thing that he does have on his coaching resume is obviously coaching younger talent as we mentioned with uconn and the overtime elite so goes right along the same lines with the brooklyn nets that have a young squad and i think he was also a finalist for the detroit head coaching job um so got some experience at least interviewing for that role and might be a head coach here in the near future. Now, a name that uh, Bruce had dangled out there to possibly join the Boston Celtics staff, at least someone he would like to see mentioned, Terry Stotts is actually going to be headed to the Milwaukee Bucks to join first-year head coach Adrian Griffin. Stotts had previously been a head coach for the Bucks back in the day and uh, now joins a much different Milwaukee Bucks club and ownership here. Um Bruce, what are your takeaways with Stotts headed back to Milwaukee? And uh, I think that's a good fit going right hand in hand with Adrian Griffin signing. Total win. Great hire. I got nothing else to say. I mean, for a young coach like Adrian Griffin, who certainly is more ready to coach in the NBA than uh, than Joe Mazzula was, simply based on the number of years he was a, an assistant, it's an ideal hire. You know, yep. big, big win for Milwaukee. And we'll be, I'll ask you this real quick. Should we fire up any uh, trade rumors of Damian Lillard headed to the Milwaukee Bucks? I mean, Terry Stotts was his first head coach. So, I mean, should we start playing with the trade machine that you like? Uh, yeah, add that to the list of places <laughs> where he's supposed to be ending up. I, I uh, That would be a new one in the mix. I, I have him everywhere from the Lakers to the Knicks. So <laughs> I don't know why uh, Milwaukee would be any different. Uh, I why somebody would want that contract at this point. It's and uh, with Damian Lillard's injury history of late is uh, beyond me. But that's all right. Uh, yeah, I agree with Bruce. I think Terry Stotts a good hire. It'll definitely uh, help out their offense. Terry's uh, inability to get the team to play defense at the end is what ultimately uh, got him cost him his job in Portland. Brought in Chauncey Billups, who. As, as Portland fans are finding out, it's not always the coach that's a problem because Portland's defense is not exactly uh, become elite under Chauncey yet. He's got a lot of young players, so it's not all on him, but it just hasn't been uh, – hasn't improved dramatically, let's put it that way. Yep. And moving right along here, another big-name hire for the New Orleans Pelicans, James Borrego. Bruce, any thoughts on Borrego headed down to the Pelicans? 
it's kind of a return in some ways for him. He began his coaching career in New Orleans 12 seasons ago under, wait for it, Monty Williams. <laughs> so it's a it's a nice homecoming. He coached Charlotte for four seasons and was an endless disappointment to World B. Freer as the Hornets didn't sniff the playoffs during his four years there. But uh, he was also an assistant in San Antonio and Orlando. He was even uh, interim coach in Orlando when he was Jacques Vaughn's assistant back in 15 uh, when Vaughn got fired. So, uh, you know, good hire, you know, a lot of, lot of stops along the way. He's kind of a journeyman coach, I guess you could say, but uh, you know, it's uh, you know, it's a good guy to have next to Willie green on the bench. I would say. Anything to add on Borrego there will be. Well, the first thing is I'll take uh, a little issue with Bruce, Bruce's uh, <laughs> characterization of Borrego's tenure with uh, the Hornets. They did actually sniff the playoffs making the play in tournament. So while they got blown out in both years that he they were in there, they at least sniffed it. They just had to sniff it from not from a great distance away, a little bit closer. But you know that doesn't make it any better. Uh, I thought he was a good coach uh, when he was with the Hornets. He wasn't a great coach. Uh, he the defense was lacking, which I was surprised at because of his uh, background as a coach. You know where he uh, taught under or learned under. Uh, so I was a little surprised by that when he was with the Hornets, but he, he was also part of a, a difficult transition when they went from, they had Kemba and they were deciding what to do with Kemba and they eventually let Kemba go and got a trade, you know, so he was kind of in the middle of that. Uh, so it's not a, well, it wasn't a successful tenure with, with the Hornets. It wasn't, uh, shouldn't all fall on him. Yeah. And last one that I want to get to here tonight, Steven Silas is joining Monty Williams' staff in Detroit as the lead assistant. Silas has lots of previous experience being a lead assistant, having served in that role for the Hornets, Mavericks, and Warriors, and obviously most recently being the head coach of the Houston Rockets. Bruce, I knew I know that you know uh, his dad quite well, or did know him quite well, working at ESPN. What are your thoughts on uh, Stephen joining Monty's staff in Detroit? Any son of Paul Silas is okay by me. Paul Silas was one of the great men in the basketball family. Not only was he a great player with multiple championships to his credit in Boston and in Seattle, too. Um, his son Stephen, I remember when he, you know, when he got I, I hired, I think as an assistant in Golden State, which I think was one yep. of his first gigs. And I remember uh, I asked Paul, "Can I have his email? I'd just like to send him a note." And I did, and he sent me this really nice note back, just a wonderful, classy guy. And I'm so happy for him. Will be anything to add on Silas headed to Detroit? If there was ever a coach that deserved to be on a winning organization, it's Steven <laughs> Silas. Uh, he's been on the staff at the Hornets when they had the worst record in the history of this league. He's had to coach the Rockets, who were so young, they're still in diapers. And now he's going to Detroit, which is just another young team coming off of yet another bad season. Can we please get him on a team, whether that's with Detroit or not, get him on a team that has some success. He deserves it. I'm pretty sure he was a, uh assistant coach on his dad's staff when LeBron was a rookie. Um, in Cleveland way back in the day as well. So maybe that council, I mean, they weren't great, but they were at least better than the teams you're referring to there will be. But uh, certainly wish him the, the best of luck. And I think that's a great hire uh, by Monte Williams and the Detroit Pistons. So should be fun to watch them develop that young, talented team. Now for our fourth quarter, Bruce, I'm going to kind of roll this one out to you here. You had told me that you had a birthday surprise for me and our listeners. So how about you take it away? Time for some more hijinks here at 48 Minutes. Every so often, Ross likes to open our new random pack of basketball cards and quiz <laughs> myself and World B in a game we call the Card Challenge. This time, I'm turning the tables on birthday boy Ross uh, and World B. I'm going to quiz my teammates on some random old school guys. Uh, uh -oh. in a variation of the game called the Classic Card Challenge. We'll test your historical knowledge and hopefully not make you guys look too, too bad. 
It's going to be five cards each. We're going to start with Ross. And I would ask you guys, try to keep each comment to about 30 seconds so we can blow through these. It should, right. I'm making it easy for you because if you don't have much, <laughs> you can easily fall, fall into 30 seconds. So card number one for you, Ross. Tony Parker. Oh, Give Tony us 30. Parker. Yeah. Obviously a French prospect came over and developed under Greg Popovich with the San Antonio Spurs, became their cornerstone point guard throughout the championships. Very tough, very crafty, knew how to get to the, the hole at ease and uh, gave me a lot of nightmares as a Suns fan because he had a, a ton of crazy games, crazy finishes at the rim. And uh, I went to bed quite sad a lot because of Tony Parker. Hopefully he can help Victor Wenbanyama find some good French restaurants in San Antonio now that yeah. he's there. All right, World B. This one should be pretty much of a layup for you. That's number 13 from the New York Knicks, Mark Jackson. Ooh. Oh, Action Jackson. One of one of the best uh, point guards ever to come out of New York City. Uh, I remember the day he got drafted back in 1987. He fell all the way to the Knicks and and the first year with Rick Pitino, Jackson won the Rookie of the Year, led him back to the playoffs somewhere they hadn't been in a couple of years, and he teamed up with Patrick Ewing. And the Ewing and Mark Jackson and Rick Pitino, their second year in the league, it would have been 89, had one of the best uh, teams in the league. They fell to Jordan, got upset by Jordan in the playoffs, but they had a remarkable year. They, they were the run-and-gun team uh, before what we see now. They were hoisting up threes at an unprecedented level uh, during that time. So, yeah, he was a great, uh, great Nick. He went on to have a great career with uh, with the Pacers, won with the Clippers, won with the Clippers. I mean, how many – back then, nobody won with the Clippers except uh, he joined uh, Larry Brown's team and they made the playoffs. And they got to the Pacers and they made the championship, the NBA Finals. Uh, so he, he had a great career. I believe he's – I don't know if he's the all-time assist, but he's up there in the assist level. And uh, at least top 10, if not top five, all time in assists. Yeah, I think he's actually in the top three or four, believe it or not. So, I mean, John Stockton's way ahead of everybody else, yeah. but Jackson's near near behind him. And I believe Mark deserves another shot at coaching in the NBA. But as each season goes by and he's further away from his last gig, uh, it's starting to feel like it's never going to happen. All right, Ross, this is for all of you living in the 602. All right. Agent Zero, Gilbert Arenas. Gilbert Arenas. Well, he's got a, a very popular podcast now that he has, Gil's Arena or something like that. Obviously went to the University of Arizona, um, was not a well-sought-out rookie, uh, had to earn everything that he got in the NBA, became Agent Zero with the Washington Wizards and uh, had a heck of a career there until he decided to bring uh, – some weapons to work. And that kind of was the downfall of his career. Um, but heck of a player, heck of a scorer. And one of those guys that was certainly cold blooded in the final seconds of the game, he had no fear of shooting it. And most of the time he was making them. So uh, had a heck of a career and now is a pretty good basketball entertainer as a podcaster. All right. World B. I only want you to do 30 seconds on this next guy because I think you could probably uh, do 30 minutes if uh -oh. I if I didn't put the hook out for you. So here we go. Latrell Sprewell. Ooh. Uh, Spree, Mr. Energy. Uh, big factor in the Knicks making the 99 finals. Uh, he was the energizer guy off the bench. He had some of the best moments of his career, really, once he got to New York. He was an all-star with the with the uh, Golden State Warriors before then. And first-team All-NBA one year, 94. People don't realize that. He made first-team All-NBA one year. But, yeah, he was a Mr. Energized guy with the, with the Knicks, and he's a main member of the 99 squad at Risa Finals. Okay. Uh, since you're such a Suns fan, Ross, I'm going to torture you with another former San Antonio Spur. Before he was known as Manu Ginobili, he was Ooh. known as Emmanuel Ginobili. What the do you got? The lefty specialist. I mean, much more athletic than you'd see from the eye. I mean, that guy would uh, put put you on a poster real quick if you decided to jump when he'd slash to the basket with the ball. Um, 
Great off-the-bench score. One of the ultimate six men the NBA has ever seen. Super crafty, super tough. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you kind of summed it up there. Just more nightmare fuel for me as far as uh, the memories I have of him torching the Phoenix Suns and having some big scoring outings and, and big moments for the Spurs and was a big part of that championship run. All right, World B. I gave you Mark Jackson already. I gave you Latrell Sprewell. I got another Nick for you. Greg G-Money Anthony. Greg was a solid defender. Uh, He was the first draft pick in the Pat Riley era in 91. And he came off the bench. He backed up up Mark Jackson on their first first go-around when they lost to the Bulls in conference semifinals. He was a... uh, a fearless individual. He only spent a few seasons in New York because he ended up, I guess, going in the expansion draft to Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver, and then eventually ended up in Portland, where he had a good run there. But yeah, he was a good uh, lefty off the bench. I always cringe when I saw him take a jumper, though. <laughs> he had a he had a great fight with Kevin Johnson one year too. That was one of the best brawls that I can remember. All right, here's a well that yeah. You know, by the way. Real- Real quick on that one, he was in street clothes when he did that. By the way, that was Doc Rivers' fight with Kevin Johnson, and I watched it live when it happened. And Greg Anthony was in street clothes and came off the bench and sucker punched Kevin Johnson. And that yeah, he he involved himself in that fight. That was not his fight until he decided to be a part of it. That was one of the most hideous shirts. Also, there used to be these shirts. They were called Huckapoo shirts. I don't know. You guys might not remember Huckapoo shirts. No. That was a that was a Huckapoo shirt, and it was really, really ugly. All right. This next one, it? Ross. Is it ahead, Tim Ross. Duncan? Is it Tim Duncan? Like I'm 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 starting to develop a theme here. No. <laughs> it's gonna be a layup by a guy who rarely <laughs> shot layups. So here you go, Ross. Reggie Miller. Reggie Miller. Uh what do you have? Nine points in 13 seconds against World B's uh, New York Knickerbockers. I mean, that was a big one. Obviously, Reggie Miller, one of the all-time greatest three-point shooters, obviously had his record broken uh, just a season ago by Steph Curry Push off. At, at Madison Square Garden. And, um, you know, just a heck of a player, one of the more marketable stars in the 90s. I certainly had a poster of him growing up and – uh now, looking back on it, knowing what I do now about markets, quite incredible as he wasn't an Indiana Pacer at the time, not a really big market city, but I certainly knew about him growing up when uh, I was just a young buck. So uh, certainly uh, uh, watched his games and loved using them in uh, NBA Live and NBA Jam because, man, he could really torch that three and in an NBA Jam, he'd get that hoop on fire. All right, World B, card number four coming for you. Celtic great uh, Kendrick Perkins. Wow. Rookie card. <laughs> uh, big uh big guy in the middle. Solid uh solid defender. And he's actually become more well known since leaving the game as uh the personal uh member leading member of the Joker fan club, if you will. <laughs> So he he uh, he was a solid player with the with the Celtics and then elsewhere after after he left uh, Boston. But yeah, he's uh, he's made a bigger name for himself since leaving the game. I would think it's fair to say. Yeah, Monday Monday morning on first take, he and JJ Redick were just like clawing. They were like ripping chunks of skin off of each other. It was great. It was really good TV. Stephen A. was actually the quiet one for a while, you know, on that one. That should get okay. you an Emmy all by itself. Right. Okay. Final card for each one. One of my all-time favorites, and Ross, I'm sure, probably one of yours. Chris Mullen. Oh man, he was a uh, yeah. I always remember the flat top number one. That's the first thing that comes to mind with Chris Mullen. Just very tough-nosed defender, competitive, fiery. Um, obviously, coached. Uh, St. Joe's for a while. Um, I think he was there when I was there with the New York Knicks uh, as we shared Madison Square Garden. St. John's. Um, St. John's, excuse yep. me. Yep. And uh, I know he was part of the, the dream team 
um, played a played a, a role in that as well as a supporting member of that that team and uh, just a just a warrior a warrior great had some big years with the Golden State Warriors and um, he's made a quite quite a career for himself um, from from his playing days to his coaching days and uh, he'll be a legend forever. Final card will be free will be freer. The Fonz, Lafonso Ellis. Ooh. I'll say this. Well, I'll tell you one story. He was on the 94 Nuggets squad that became the first eight seed to beat a one seed in the playoffs with the, the Kembe and, and uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf and, and company. He was on that squad. Uh, one of the nicest people I've come to work with during my time at ESPN. I mean, an absolutely super nice individual. And it's really great to see him do so well after his career. He was a solid NBA player. He was a solid college player, too, with Notre Dame. By the way, he was an All-American at Notre Dame. And then he got to the pros. He had, he had a solid career. I don't think he was ever an All-Star, but he stayed in the league for a long time. I just want to compliment both of you guys. I mean, a lot of those names are pretty well-known. But you yeah. guys really demonstrated great depth of knowledge. And this is why people should really like 48 Minutes. Yeah, we can talk about Miami. We can talk about Denver. But we can go back in time. And you guys, your historical perspective, your knowledge about these guys, I knew you guys were going to nail it. And that's why I wanted to have some fun with it. But bravo to you guys. I mean, great job out of you. Uh, we, we had a lot of fun with that one. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And thanks for the birthday treat there, Bruce. Uh that was you. You got you kept me on my toes with that one, uh, throwing throwing back the clocks and and, and getting my uh, brain fired up to retrace some memories. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, let's go ahead and get to our final thoughts here. And Bruce, I'm going to start with you. Heat culture. When the eighth seeded Miami Heat made it to the NBA Finals, they started by beating the number one seed, then the number five seed, then the number two seed. Check, check, and check. And if the Heat expect to win a championship, they'll need to beat the top team in the West, the Denver Nuggets. The Miami Heat never had the home court in any series, but they really don't care, okay? The Heat like to tell you about their institutional culture, and while many fans poo-poo it or say it's exaggerated, I say it's a thing, and it is real. So what does it consist of? Well, it starts with the leadership, namely the godfather, Pat Riley and his like-minded coach, Eric Spolstra, who was kind of mean to Ramona, and that wasn't cool, Eric, but Ramona deserved better, and she's awesome. But I digress. Riles has been there 28 years. Spolstra's been there 28 as well, the last 15 as head coach. In a league that features impatient management, Riley Spolstra and the Arison family, which owns the team, are the exact opposite. Stability at the top means a course of action can be established, implemented, and given time to take root. Player development has always been one of their strengths, as evidenced by all the undrafted guys making an impact on winning. Conditioning is also a priority, and no NBA team is in better shape, as we saw with them closing hard against Denver in a game where a lot of times the opponents are not physically sound. That, uh, that also goes along with cutting hard, playing smart, playing gritty, playing team defense, and always appearing to be in sync with one another. Those are also hallmarks of the Heat culture. Mental toughness is a requirement, and plenty of would-be Heat players couldn't handle that part, but this group surely can, and the result is some of the most inspirational team basketball we've seen. I don't know if the Heat will complete this improbable championship run, but even if they end up losing to Denver, they'll go down fighting and make Denver earn it. And if the Heat somehow prevail and win the title, their culture of excellence will be a big reason why. Well said there, Bruce, and certainly uh, have a lot of legends around that organization, as you just well uh, stated there. And uh, this one could be added to, to the resume as it continues to grow. As for my final thought, you know, the deadline to pull out of the draft is now over for NBA draft prospects. And now we're just a few weeks away from draft night. Being a huge fan of draft night, I love to keep an eye out for who's working out who. So it's very it's a very interesting time to track which draft prospects work out where 
and go ahead and follow the reports that leak out after each workout. I'm certainly keeping an eye on it. I certainly will keep you guys up to date. I know today, one of my favorite draft prospects in this year's draft, Gigi Jackson, who's now sliding into the second round, worked out for the Indiana Pacers. And to one of my friends who listens to the show and isn't an Indiana Pacers fan, I let him know that they would be fools to pass on this guy twice when they have two late first round picks. So uh, very interested to see how that workout went today for him and for all the other top prospects that are now working out around the NBA. And, uh, you know, as the day gets near, we should have certain guys go back for second workouts to give us a little clearer picture of the draft range uh, of some of these prospects. But nonetheless, I'm really looking forward to this year's draft and um, I'm continuing to keep an open eye out on all the news. World B, what are your final thought here tonight? Uh, doesn't look like uh, World B is with us at the moment. Um, but uh, Bruce, uh, obviously tonight's been a fun show with our classic basketball card challenge and uh, going over the game three that we are most certainly looking forward to. And we'll have uh, some more updates for everybody on Friday. Um, I think we'll just go ahead and wrap this one up, don't you think? Yes. Uh, and uh World B, thanks for joining us. A uh, little technical difficulties towards the end of the show. We apologize for not being able to get to your closing comment. I'm sure it was something really, really smart, as it always is. <laughs> but we'll see you, uh, World B, next time. And uh, Ross, as always, it's a pleasure. And uh, who do you have in Game 3 for the uh, Heat Nuggets? Who do you think is going to win Game 3? I'm going to take Miami. I think they got the confidence behind them. I'm actually going to redeem myself here and I'm going to say Caleb Martin has a big game I think he's going to score in double figures in game three and propel the heat to a game three win so we'll have to keep an eye out on Caleb Martin but before we go Bruce who do you have real quick I think it's going to be Denver because really they've come so far this season and if they lose game three I think they're really going to be on the rope so I think Denver is going to show us that they can play with desperation. They're going to come out and do it. It will be a dogfight. It will be a close game. It will not be a blowout. Uh, but I see Denver uh, grabbing the home court uh, back and, and taking a 2-1 lead. And we'll see what happens when we're back uh, later in the week. Certainly will. And with that, that will do it for this edition of the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back with you on Friday to be sure you're up to date in 48 on all things around the association. Take care, everybody.